Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 19. Gospel of John chapter 19. We'll look this morning at verses 31 to 37 as we continue our study of this gospel. <clears throat> Yesterday on the 4th of July we celebrated American Independence Day. Many of us may not have given that a thought as we were busy with our family and friends. But the freedom we enjoyed yesterday and today and every day we have only at great cost a price paid by someone else. Let me read you a quote from an article I read yesterday in my own little private rethinking of uh, Independence Day. An article about the lives of the men who actually signed their name to that Declaration of Independence on July the 4th, 1776. Just a couple of excerpts. Of those 56 who signed the Declaration of Independence, nine died of wounds or hardships during the Revolutionary War. Five were captured and imprisoned, in each case with brutal treatment. Several lost wives, sons, or entire families. One lost his 13 children. Two wives were brutally treated. All were at one time or another the victims of manhunts and driven from their homes. Twelve signers had their homes completely burned. Seventeen lost everything they owned, yet not one defected or went back on his pledged word. Their honor and the nation they sacrificed so much to create is still intact. The 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence proved by their every deed that they made no idle boast when they said, and for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Magnitude of our heritage as Americans is overwhelming to anyone who will take the time to think about it. <coughs> But this morning I want to turn your attention to something that is of even greater magnitude than that. The benefits that we have derived not from the lives of these 56 men and countless others, like, but the benefit that we have derived from the death of one man, the Lord Jesus. On the cross one afternoon outside the ancient city of Jerusalem, he gained for us even infinitely more than all the blessings that we know in this land, our great American heritage. That's where our text points us today. Some of the magnitude of the benefits that we have in Christ. Well, let me read the text. Look with me. 
edit, if you will. John 19, verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation. And the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. It was Roman custom when someone was crucified to simply leave the body hanging on the cross to rot or to be picked clean by the vultures. But this was Palestine. And for the sake of peace, the Jewish law also had to be taken into account. And Jewish law demanded that a body not be left hanging, lest it defile the land. Indeed, the Jewish leaders were especially concerned about Jesus' body on the cross, for the next day was a special Sabbath, part of the Passover celebration. They didn't want to defile themselves, you know, by breaking the law. And so the Jewish leaders asked Pilate to perform what was called the Chirifragium, to hasten the death of Jesus. This was a procedure that involved breaking the legs of those hanging on the cross with an iron mallet. And with his legs broken, one could no longer lift the weight of his body to help him breathe, and so the lungs would fill with fluid more rapidly and the victim would soon suffocate. So the soldiers went to carry out this brutal act on one of the robbers crucified next to Jesus and then the other one, but when they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. How they knew, we're not told, but just to make sure, one of them took his spear and brutally jabbed it up through the trunk of his body. When he did, blood and water gushed from Jesus' side. Now John makes a point that he is a witness to all this. That's what he says so emphatically in verse 35. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. John saw the evidence that Jesus was dead. There was no question. He watched as the spear was thrust into his side. He watched as the fluid gushed out. He knew what he saw. And so here he tells us, his readers, about it. But why? That's the question we have to reflect on this morning. Why? Why does John, who told us of Jesus' death so simply and Part of one verse, he gave up the spear. Verse 30. Why does he now make such a big point of these things that happened after he was already dead? Well, he says, so that you might believe. But what does he think we will see here that will make us believe? 
You see, John sees in these events evidence of the meaning of Jesus' death. It's not enough to just record the fact that Jesus died. He wants us to know why he died. And so he shows us why. Not with a great long theological treatise, but with two simple quotations. Two predictions from the Old Testament that he saw fulfilled that day. But here he knows if we will take the time to think about what those predictions predict, we will find the meaning of Jesus' death. As we compare Scripture with Scripture, letting the Bible interpret the Bible. So having worked on this for a few days, let me suggest to you the two things that I think John wants us to see here. Things the Holy Spirit wants us to see is the meaning of Jesus' death. The first is this, that on the cross, Jesus sets us free. On the cross, Jesus sets us free. That's providential that we come to this text on the 4th of July weekend when Americans celebrate Independence Day. For these events in our text happened on the eve of the Passover. And that's what the Passover was for the Jews. It was their Independence Day. It was the day centuries earlier when God miraculously delivered them from the oppressive hand of the Egyptians who had enslaved them for over 400 years. It was the day when God took a, a mass of Hebrew slaves and brought them out and made them into a great holy nation. This was Independence Day for the Jews. Open on this particular Passover Eve, as Jesus hung on the cross, things did not look so wonderful for the Jews. There were occupying Roman troops in the streets. The Jewish people were not an independent nation any longer, had not been for centuries. And so this Passover celebration would certainly remember what had been true and would try to keep alive the hope that freedom would again ring in that land. But on this Passover, the Romans were firmly in control. Indeed, Israel was experiencing what the whole world knows, that we tend to go from one tyrant to another. Whether it's the tyranny of foreign oppression or the tyranny of the mindless, pleasure-loving mob, we live in a fallen world. Sinful powers, in one form or another, continually oppress us, generation after generation. That's what makes John's observation so important. He stood and watched these things happen. And he watched as the Romans came, intentionally coming to break the legs of Jesus. And then he watched as, through a strange turn of events, they did not break the legs of Jesus. And as he reflected on what he saw, he realized he had seen God's providential hand at work. He had seen prophecy fulfilled that day. For back in Psalm 34, 20, it reads of the, man, the righteous man who trusts God. The Lord protects his bones. Not one of them will be broken. 
Oh, but it's not just that a righteous man has hope of the Lord's protection, but that is specifically a, a, a quotation that points to the Passover. For in Exodus chapter 12 and again in Numbers chapter 9, we, we read of the Passover lamb. It's the Passover lamb of whom the Lord commands, you will not break a bone of the Passover lamb. And so as John reflects on what he had seen, he realized that what he saw happen there at the foot of the cross on this Passover Eve was God indicating that this was his perfect Passover lamb. Remember, that's what the baptizer had said. Look, there's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what is the significance of Jesus being God's ultimate Passover lamb? Well, it means that he sets us free. That's what the Passover had been for Israel. Freedom from the judgment that fell on their enemies all around, the wrath of God. Freedom from the oppression of the wicked. Freedom to be God's holy nation. And that's what God promised to do again throughout the prophets. He promised that he would deliver his, that he would gather his elect and deliver them from the oppressive power of sin and he would make of his people a free and holy nation again forever. Israel hoped for a Messiah to do that. Sometimes they settled for maybe thinking they could negotiate with the Romans to do that. But God, but John wants us to know that God did it. In a way nobody expected by the sacrifice of another now perfect Passover lamb. On the cross, Jesus sets us free. I tell you this morning, that is God's agenda in our day. We can delight in our wonderful American heritage, and it is indeed delightful. But it is peanuts compared to God's agenda. God is taking the people from every tribe and nation and language and culture and race on earth. He is choosing and drawing his people by the power of the gospel and setting them free to make a new holy nation that will possess the world forever. That's how Paul describes it. Colossians chapter 1, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness. And has brought us into the kingdom of his son. On the cross, Jesus made it all possible. He accomplished it all in our stead. He was the Passover lamb that died in our place in order that we might be free. And you may say, wait a minute, that's not the kind of freedom that I think of. That's spiritual stuff. That's pie in the sky, by and by stuff. I'm interested in freedom right now and right here. I tell you, what looks like freedom right now and right here is not freedom. It's often slavery. Exercising their freedom to do what they please. People get hooked on drugs and alcohol every day. Looks like freedom. It's slavery. Exercising their newfound sexual freedom. People in our culture get burdened with unwanted pregnancies and sexually transmitted diseases and a life filled with guilt. Looked like freedom, but it's slavery. 
exercising our freedom to spend and consume all we want whenever we want. Looks like freedom, but it ends up shackling us with debt that we can't get out of and ruining our good name. And even a nation drunk with its power to do whatever it pleases, to teach whatever it pleases, to try whatever it pleases, to televise whatever it pleases, to make whatever laws it pleases. A nation that is going to be free to do its own thing is already beginning to reap the slavery, the bondage of our own lusts and passions coming back to haunt us. No, it is Jesus who sets us free. The road to freedom, though, was not what people expected. It was not the road of a great general with military might. It was a road that led to the cross. For Jesus gained our freedom by paying the debt with his own life. It is finished. Our substitute, our Passover lamb. And thus he averted the wrath of God and purchased us to set us free to live as his holy nation. And now the way of freedom for us is not what we would think either. It's not the road of triumphalism and power and wealth. It's the road of the cross. Discipleship to Jesus. Abandoning ourselves, giving ourselves away in order to serve him. It's a way of repentance from sin. It's a way of faith in the Savior. It's a way of obedience and faithfulness. Or it may not look like the road to freedom at first. It may look like it's terribly restrictive, but this is true freedom, the freedom that we find in the Jesus who hung on the cross. For there, he sets us free. But there's a second thing that John wants us to understand from the cross. A second quotation that he gives to us. A second lesson. It's this, that by his death, Jesus restores our souls. By his death, Jesus restores our souls. Now here's a truth that's been largely missed in this passage. It's a wonderful truth that's too good to miss. But it's been missed because... The information about the blood and water flowing from Jesus' side when he was pierced has become a red herring. You know what a red herring is, don't you? That's an old expression. Some of you kids may not know what a red herring is. That's, that's an old figure of speech that came from the idea of dragging a smelly uh, smoked fish across the path when bloodhounds were trying to track something in a hunt. It, it, it diverts them from what they're doing. Gets them off on some other course of action. And so it came to be known as, it came to refer to anything that diverts our attention from something else. That's what's happened in this text. People's attention, they got as far as the blood and the water flowed from Jesus' side, and they've gone crazy. It's been an amusing week, as I've read, what people have done with this. I would love to tell you some of them, but it would only divert your attention, too, from the task at hand. John's point, though, is that the prophecy was fulfilled. A prophecy was fulfilled. 
when Jesus' side was pierced. God, in his providence, used even the gratuitous violence of some soldier who on the spur of the moment, seeing Jesus was dead, decided to thrust his spear up into him instead of breaking his leg. But God used it as a token to fulfill a prophecy which pointed us to the meaning of what he was doing there. When John realized what he had seen there, he writes for us, these things happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. The scripture which says they will look on the one they have pierced. Now what scripture is that? What's John talking about? Why is it so important? Well, the scripture is found in Zechariah chapter 12. Now, Zechariah is probably not a book that you've read very much. It's a difficult book. It's It's a strange text. It's a hard passage to understand. It's a hard book to understand. And so John and the Holy Spirit sort of send us on quite a treasure hunt when John says, this is what Zechariah was talking about. And we go looking and say, boy, what was Zechariah talking about? It's a reminder that everything in the Bible is not easy, folks. Just a little word of advice here about this. Uh, Though many things in Scripture are plain to all, don't ever lose a teachable spirit because not everything is as plain as you think. This is God's Word, not the newspaper we're reading. So what's going on in Zechariah 12? Well, listen to how the Old Testament scholar Joyce Baldwin describes what we find here. The murder has occurred in Jerusalem of a man who is in some way identified with the Lord. And the inhabitants of the city have been responsible for his death. After the event, they have become conscience-stricken. And in their deep grief, they have found the gift of a new spirit of repentance and supplication for forgiveness, which is closely followed by the promise of cleansing from a newly opened fountain. This is all connected with the piercing and the death of the messenger of the Lord. Wow. Does that sound like it has something to do with what John saw? Doesn't that sound like it has something to do with what happened in the wake of the death and resurrection of Jesus? Let, let, let me read it for you. Turn with you care to, to Zechariah chapter 12. That's one of those minor prophets. It's the longest one, so maybe it's easy to find. Zechariah chapter 12. Let me read just a couple of verses here. 12.10. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication and they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And that's skipping down just a few verses to 13.1. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David. 
and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Can you imagine John's excitement when he realized what he had seen standing at the foot of the cross? When he put the pieces together and said, I was looking at the one who was pierced. Isn't there something in the Bible about that? He went digging through the scrolls and found Zechariah 12. He said, look, this is what God promised. This little fulfillment points us back to the promised fountain of grace. Can you imagine John's excitement when it all began to happen? When on the day of Pentecost, there in that very city, 3,000 people in Jerusalem became grief-stricken with guilt because of their participation in the crucifixion of Jesus. When they realized they had put to death the Messiah, and when they heard that he had now risen from the dead, and they said to the apostles, Brothers, what are we going to do? And you know the answer. The answer was not, you're finished. He's risen and he's will, he will destroy you forever. Oh no. The answer was, repent and be baptized, all of you murderers, in the name of Christ Jesus for the remission, the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, look in faith on the very one you pierced in your sinfulness. For in him there is grace. In him there is such a fountain of forgiveness that you cannot imagine he is able to wash away the defilement, the sin, the impurity. Because of his death, Jesus can restore your soul. You see, folks, John wants us to discover that Jesus' death did what nothing else in the whole world could do. It addressed the defilement of our hearts, the sin inside of us. And it opened up a fountain of grace to cleanse and renew from the inside out. We've seen that message repeatedly in the book of Hebrews as we've studied it together. In chapter 9, verse 9, we read all the former gifts and sacrifices were unable to clear the conscience. Oh, they were some religious ritual, but they couldn't clear the conscience. They couldn't restore the soul of the worshiper. But in chapter 9, 14, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, will cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. And again in chapter 10 of Hebrews, the old sacrifices repeated endlessly never make people perfect. 
They never cleanse for good. They always leave people feeling guilty again. But the sacrifice of Jesus, the once for all sacrifice of Jesus makes perfect forever those who are being made holy. Forgiving, writing God's law in our hearts, giving us a new spirit, just like God promised. In other words, by his death, Jesus restores our soul. Great hymn writer William Cooper understood this truth. As you may recall, he was a man tormented with distress in his heart. Mental illness, a man ripped apart inside, often suicidal. Where does one go for restoration when you're so troubled and mangled inside as this man? Where do you look? Who has real hope in the midst of that agony that doesn't go away? Well, William Cooper understood that by his death, Jesus had opened a fountain of grace that was sufficient for his trouble. Sufficient for his troubled soul that so desperately needed cleansing and restoration. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And so he wrote these words, which we have sung. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till the whole ransom church of God be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. How can it be? Because by his death, Jesus has opened such a fountain of grace that he restores our souls forever. When sin entered the world, two terrible things happened. First of all, the world was lost. Instead of the world being a garden where Adam walked with his Lord, the world became a haunt of tyrants, sold into captivity, the tyranny of Satan. And so man must continually look over his shoulder in fear to see what form the next depression will take, who the next tyrant will be. And then the second thing happened when sin entered the picture. It's not just that the world was sold into oppression and tyranny, but something happened inside 
of Adam. He died inside. Now in the corners of man's soul, everyone's soul, the rottenness festers and festers. The rottenness of old sins piling up. And while we try to smooth it over, we have no way to wash it out, to disinfect, to cleanse, to restore, to make new. It just keeps festering in our soul. As John watched Jesus die, and as he reflected on what he had seen, the Holy Spirit called his mind two verses of Scripture that he had learned a long time ago, probably. Two verses which provide clues to the, to, to the most wonderful news. And when we examine them, when we let the Scripture interpret the Scripture as God ordained, the implications of Jesus' death comes into clear focus. On the cross, Jesus addressed that first problem, the problem of the world. He became God's Passover lamb. He brought a whole new exodus about. He set people free from the tyranny of Satan. We don't see it all yet. But it's just a matter of time because Satan is defeated and this world belongs to King Jesus. And at the same time, on the cross, Jesus whose side was pierced opened the fountain of grace that Zechariah promised. Grace that is inexhaustible. Grace that can bring repentance and forgiveness, and cleansing, and a new heart, and a new spirit, and the Holy Spirit of God living within us. Nothing less than total restoration for these people whom he sets free. For all who believe. This morning I call you to follow Jesus. In him is true freedom. This morning I call you to come to the fountain and be cleansed and restored. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Father, for the glory of the gospel. Oh, Lord, there's so many layers of truth in your word that it boggles our minds to try to understand all the little nuances of meaning. And yet we thank you that the truth of the gospel is so simple that a that a three, four, five-year-old can understand. And yet your work is so intricate and so beautiful and so perfect that when we've applied all of our best knowledge and our best study skills, we still don't comprehend it all. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are redeeming the world for yourself. Purifying a people to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, chosen people a people bearing your name oh Lord thank you that we are part of that because of what you've done give us faith to trust you give us faith Lord to turn away from the world with all of its promises of freedom and fulfillment and to cast our lot with you 
to walk the road of the cross with you. Knowing that you in you is perfect freedom and in you is perfect restoration. Thank you for these wonderful truths, Lord. May they be lived out in us. May they fill our hearts. Cause the seed of your word to grow in us and take root. Take over our thinking. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.